because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, it's at the very back of your Bible, the easiest, one of the easiest books to find. Just go to the very back of your Bible, it's the last book there, Revelation 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. It's not Revelations with an S, it's Revelation. Okay, Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. There's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It looks like this. Go ahead and grab that, and you could, you could turn to page 1090. Page 1090 in the pew Bible here, you'll find Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 this morning. The Lord has shown himself to John in a vision in chapter 1. And he told John to write down this vision. He sees Jesus with a hair as white as wool and eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. His, sun, his face is shining like the sun at full strength. A, a sharp double-edged sword comes from his mouth. He, has, he walks among seven golden lampstands, and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. That's in chapter 1. And he tells him, write these things down. I'm going to have a message for the seven churches. And so we're in the middle of a message to the seven churches here in chapters 2 and 3, and then from 4 through the rest of it, you have the rest of the vision of um, Jesus showing his glory and then telling the church about how difficult it's going to be in this world until Christ comes again. And so that's the context, and so we'll pick it up here, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, the second of the seven letters to the churches. God's word reads, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and who came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May His word dwell richly amongst us. Pray for Safa, persecution.com reads, or I commit to pray.com reads. The headline, Pray for Safa, beaten for converting to Christianity. The prayer request reads, A Christian woman in North Africa has been repeatedly beaten recently by family members and religious leaders after her conversion to Christianity. Safa, and that's her change name, has suffered severe bruising and nausea as a result of the beatings. Local mosque leaders have told her that they will continue the beatings in an attempt to drive out the Christian demon until she returns to Islam. Please pray that Safa will remain strong in faith and that the beatings will stop. That was a prayer request months ago, several months ago, and um, we can pray for her still in, in that regard. What Safa has undergone here is a declaration of public Christianity. 
It's not just personal conversion. I trust in Jesus secretly. I believe he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he's fully God and fully man. It's not a secret belief she hides in the corner, but she told her family. She told, the, she told her community. And when you get baptized, that's the public declaration. When you do that, you are now accountable publicly for such a claim of following Jesus. And for her, that means repeated beatings. We too, like Safa, are Christians. Most of you here who are gathered here, members of this church, we are publicly declared as Christians. And so we personally and as a church, we desire to reflect Jesus and um, let the world publicly know that Jesus is Lord and that we are his followers. We are real Christians. We're not shy about that. We are not ashamed about that, at least not here on a Sunday morning with fellow Christians of our church family. Now, the problem is that Satan and the world want to silence you and make you sure or make you, make, they want to make sure that you know um, that your belief in Jesus, um, that you keep it to yourself and maybe keep it to your church. You can talk about Jesus on Sundays and talk about Jesus during a church gathering and on your own at home, but don't bring this thing into public. Don't bring this thing online. Don't bring this Jesus stuff in the public square. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to school. Don't bring it to the neighborhood. Keep it to yourself. And Satan will use, and the world will use, persecution in general. And really, most persecution is not a knife to your throat or a law of the land that is true, that does happen at times. But most persecution for Christians around the world, even in America, is in the form of slander. Words, people saying things about you to you or to others about you to ostracize you and marginalize you and make you feel small and fearful and ashamed and silent. This is the persecution of the world. This is the strategy. And Jesus said in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Because you won't be silent. You're going to keep talking about Jesus' word. And when you do, they'll either keep it because they convert and follow Jesus or they'll oppose you. But you will get a reaction from those when you gospelize them. Amen. You know, the Bible is filled with this story of affliction from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they were there getting their punishment from God. God speaks to the serpent and he says in Genesis 3.15, Cursed are you. I will put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman and between her seed and your seed. So there's a hostility that's going to happen between the seed of the serpent, the offspring, the descendants of the serpent, and the descendants of the woman. And as you trace that through the Bible story, you have Cain and Abel. Abel was the seed of the woman and Cain, not physically, but spiritually was the seed of the serpent. And so Cain kills Abel. And then later they become a nation after Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. They become a nation land of Israel. And so you have the people of God, Israel. And who's against them? The, the nation of Egypt and the Pharaoh. Again, there's hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, spiritually speaking. And then you have Israel and the Philistines in the land. And then you have Israel exiled by Babylon and Assyria. And then you have Jesus born of a virgin. And you got magi coming to worship him. And they tell King Herod, and King Herod wants to, quote unquote, worship the baby, right? 
but he doesn't want to worship the baby. He wants to express his hostility towards the seed of the woman because he is the seed of the serpent. And not only Herod, then you get Jesus being um, sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan directly. 40 days in the wilderness without food, tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then in the garden of Gethsemane. And then on the cross, Jesus versus Satan attacked again and again and again. And then after Jesus, you have the world, the church and the world, according to Revelation 13, where, Jesus, where Satan can't, the dragon can't get at the, at the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, so he goes after the rest of her offspring, namely the church. And so Satan goes against the church. And he, he even influences the world to go after the church. This has been happening since the beginning. There is inherently in this world until Christ comes and expands his kingdom to cover the whole earth and finally throw his enemies into final judgment, there will always be hostility. There will always be persecution. There will always be opposition because there is still sin in this world. Amen. So a non-Christian might ask, why? Okay, I understand you guys, you guys are the woe is me group Christians. You guys are saying everyone's against you. Um, why are Christians so exclusive? Why are they so arrogant? You might be thinking that if you're not a Christian. Why do they think that they're the only ones that has the truth, as if everyone else is a dummy and they're the only smart ones? Why is it that Christians are so closed-minded? Can't they see that there are many ways to God? Must they insist that there's only one way to God? To insist there's only one exclusive way is stubborn, idiotic, bigoted, outdated, and a threat to peace in the world. Why do Christians insist that Jesus is the only way? Well, if that's what you're thinking this morning, that's a good question. If I might respond in a few ways, first of all, I would say, if there are many ways and every way is valid, then you can't be mad at anyone's way. So if, if the Christian way is valid and you're say, you think every way is valid, then our way is valid as well. You can't be morally outraged at that because you must be consistent with your view, which means our way is valid. But it's not, it doesn't sit well with you because we're, saying, we're not only saying our way is valid, we're saying our way is the only way, which is why it doesn't sit well with you as a non-Christian perhaps. But you need to also realize this. Everyone who makes a statement excludes those who disagree with that statement. That's the nature of statements. When you make a statement, people agree or disagree, and you exclude. Even if you say, everyone is right, that's your statement, everyone is correct, then those who disagree with that statement are wrong, in your view. They're incorrect, right? In other words, you are pushing a view that you think is right, everyone is correct, and you're doing that as you should, and you're insisting that everyone submits to your view. So if someone says, no, I don't think everyone is correct, you're saying, wrong, everyone is correct. That, you could see the inherent contradiction there. But we get it. It's okay for you to insist upon your view. But we're just asking merely that you give the Christians the same right to insist upon their view. Because that's what Christians must do if they're going to be faithful to Lord Jesus. We might respectfully disagree with you, but we will seek to persuade you. Christian... What does this mean for you if you're a Christian? And this is specifically important in America. Whether it's religious pluralism, that every view is okay. Whether it's Islam, like we read about with Safa. Whether it's Roman Catholicism or moralistic therapeutic deism, that God is good and everyone goes to heaven as long as they don't murder anybody. 
whether it's atheism or agnosticism or hedonism or relativism or eroticism, that's sexual immorality, homosexuality, polygamy, all of those immoralities according to the Bible. In the midst of all of this in our world, I have a question for you, Christian. Are you prepared to speak God's truth in love to those who hold these views? Are you prepared to speak God's truth in love? And are you prepared to accept the consequences of speaking the truth in love? Jesus calls us to follow him and to be prepared to die for him. In Revelation 2.10, he says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction, tribulation, for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's Jesus' call that says command. If you're not faithful to the point of death, what does that mean? First Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.12 says this. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithful, if we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him before others, he will also deny us. That's scary. Are you scared to suffer and die for Jesus? I am. How do we live to prepare to die fearlessly as all true followers of Christ are commanded to here? I was talking to one of the members of the church as we were reading on Wednesday night about this, and I was thinking, you know, I mean, as a parent, what's worse is if they hurt your loved ones, right? I mean, like, if they hurt me, that's one thing, but then if they, like, say, deny Jesus or we're going to torture your loved ones, that, that seems to me even harder. Does that scare you? That's, well, that scares me. It doesn't have to scare you. I hope it doesn't scare you. It scares me. Are we scared? Let's take it down a notch here. It's seemingly extreme, but it happens. It does happen. Are, are we scared of slander and awkward or hostile relationships for Jesus? At work, at home, in the neighborhood, at school, in the church. Are you scared of slander? Are you scared of awkward or hostile relationships? Jesus says, don't be what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. That's, those are, these are the ones who receive eternal life, the crown of life. I want to know that my faith is not fickle. I want to know that it's real, don't you? We want to know that. How can we have this courage? Well, we need to look to and listen to Jesus, who came and underwent trial. He was executed. He overcame death for us, and now he's going to empower us through this passage. Here's the main goal. If you're taking notes, here's the main goal. Finish your life faithfully and fearlessly. Do not be afraid. Be faithful to the point of death. Faithfully and fearlessly. Okay. Finish your life fearlessly and faithfully, so that you enjoy your eternal reward. Amen. There it is. Okay, that's, that's how I'd summarize the passage in one sentence. That's what God wants for you this morning. Finish your life fearlessly. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Finish your life fearlessly and faithfully. Be faithful to the point of death so that you enjoy your eternal reward. Christians are called faithful in, in Revelation 17, 14, and they're called to be faithful in Revelation 13, 10. That's the goal of this passage. And Jesus gives us in this passage three reasons why we are to finish 
faithfully and fearlessly. Why you should not be afraid and why you should be faithful to the point of death, okay? Here are three reasons that if you get these three reasons in your heart, through your head, into your heart, in your bones, then you can be courageous in the midst of opposition and persecution. Because the only thing stopping us from gospelizing is fear. Amen. That's the only thing stopping you from speaking the truth and love to people is a love of this life and a fear of opposition, persecution, and death. So if you could break this fear, you can gospelize. So here it is. Reason number one, finish faithfully and fearlessly because, verse nine, Jesus knows you. Because Jesus knows you. In verse 10, because Jesus controls your suffering. And in verse 11, 10 and 11, and eight, because Jesus rewards you. Those are the three reasons. Because he knows you, because he controls your suffering, and because he rewards you. Okay, let's look at those one at a time. Number one, finish faithfully and fearlessly. Finish your life fearlessly and faithfully because Jesus knows you. He says in verse nine, look at verse nine with me. I know your what? Affliction. Another translation for affliction is? What's that? Works. Okay, I know your works. Another translation. Do you see another one there? Anyone have a different translation? Verse eight, I know your tribulation. I know your affliction. I know your tribulation or I know your pain. Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows your suffering. Jesus knows your tribulation. The The word tribulation is this idea of pressure pressing on you to crush you. It's like a boulder crushing someone. There's an affliction. There's something heavy on your shoulder. It's not something generally heavy on your shoulder. It's like a boulder on your shoulder that's seeking to crush you, like a steamroller seeking to run you over. Jesus says, I know your pain. I know your tribulation. I know your pressure. It's hostility that we trace from the beginning of the Bible story until now. In Acts 14, 22, Paul and Barnabas say to the churches, it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Christian, you have to suffer. I need a bre- we need to break this in this church and in American Christianity. You have to suffer. It's not you might suffer. If you're a Christian living for Jesus, you have to suffer. You will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Blessed are you when men revile you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5.11 and 12. Christian you have to suffer if you're a Christian. Amen. It's not optional, it's expected. And John even says in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. I'm your partner in suffering. You're suffering, I'm suffering, we're partners together. The church is a community of sufferers, of those who are opposed for the gospel because they hold forth the gospel. Many think the tribulation is exclusively in the future. That's not necessarily the case. There might be a future tribulation where it's intensified before Christ returns. But the church is in tribulation now and has always been ever since Christ was crucified. So suffering for Jesus is something we must all go through and Christ knows your suffering. And let me just say something here that's really important. John Piper makes this point in his um, seminar called Suffering for the Sake of the Body. All of your suffering on the pathway of following Jesus is suffering for Jesus. Not just a person persecuting you. Anything you do to obey Christ that brings on pain and suffering is suffering for Jesus. 
It's not just the person saying something slanderous to you. So when Paul gets whipped 39 lashes in his back and then he, goes, he gets thrown into a prison cell that is not sanitized and he, he, they throw him, he's beaten, he can barely hold himself, hold himself up. He's thrown into the prison, he lands on his back in the dirt and he gets dirt all over his open gashes and then he gets infections. Are the infections suffering for Jesus? Is the fever suffering for Jesus? Or is it only the whips? It's all of it. It's sickness, it's sabotage, it's Satan, it's death, it's, it's all of it, all of it is suffering. When you obey Jesus and you get opposition for obeying Jesus, you get pressure on you from this broken, sin-cursed world, that is suffering for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid, I know you're suffering, I know life is hard. I know your body is aching. I know that when you obeyed me and chose to do what you did, that you're suffering. I know your affliction. Jesus knows our pain. He knows the pain that comes on the path of obedience because he suffered pain. He knows your struggle. He knows it better than we do when we're left dazed and confused. Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he my strength, my victory wins. He not only knows your affliction, secondly, look at verse 9, still on this first point about Jesus knowing, um, Jesus knowing you, he, he knows your affliction, he also knows your poverty. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know your poverty. Now, Smyrna had the reputation for being a wealthy city. It was the, sort of like the Beverly Hills of the day. If, if you were... If you were to say, you know what, I want to take a tour, I want to take a trip, I want to take a vacation, Smyrna would be a city you would choose. If you went to Smyrna, as you were going, it was a port city, you could see it off of, off of the water. When you would get to this port city, you would see this hill with, a, with temples on it and buildings at the top. It almost looks like the hill has a crown on top. Not only that, this city had a, a, the street going up to this hill was a street of gold. They had a literal street of gold in Smyrna. And it was going up around this, this mountain called Mount Pegasus. I think that's how you pronounce it, Mount Pegasus. And there were temples and things along the way and a temple on top. It looked like a crown from, from far. It looked like a crown and a gold necklace with jewels of temples and buildings along the street of gold going up to this hill. And you could see it anywhere in the city. It was this beautiful city. Um, they had a temple to Sybil, which was a local god. They had a temple to Zeus. They were the first... Um, they had a temple in 195 built to Rome. They were, there was a city contest. Some commentators say six. Some commentators say 10 cities in Asia. This is ancient Asia, not current day Asia. And um, they had a contest for which, which city is going to win the, the prize of getting to build a temple to the emperor, Tiberius. And Smyrna won. So they have, a, they have another temple to the emperor. They built that in 23 B.C., so this guy would take you around here. He would show you all of the, the shops. He'd show you the port. He would show you the, the places of religion and worship and all these beautiful buildings. You know what he wouldn't show you? You know where he wouldn't take you? And now let's go, on, you're on the tram, and he's like, and now let's go see a local church. Let's go see the church in Smyrna. He wouldn't take you there. Why? Jesus says, I know not only your affliction, but your what? Your poverty. And this poverty is not just you know, middle-class poverty, like we think of in American poverty. This is, this is basically a ch church with a lot of bankrupt people, homeless people, members of the church who are put out 
because of their affliction, because of persecution. Hebrews 13, 17 says you're not allowed to buy or sell with the mark of the, if you don't have the mark of the beast. So you, here you are, you're not worshiping the emperor. You're going to get iced out and you're going to get frozen out in terms of trade with the ports and you're going to be looked at as a curse. If, if we do business with you and you're not worshiping the emperor, you're not worshiping these gods, our business might go down because of you. We're not going to do business with you. And so all of a sudden, Christians are losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. And you got a, a church of maybe half homeless people. So, you know, we could imagine, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but they're broke, they're, they're, they're poor. The tour guide would not say, and now let's look at the church of 70 people who are mostly homeless, and let's go sit in on their worship service. That's not happening at the tour, right? Nobody knows or cares about the church, except who? Jesus. I know your affliction, and I know your poverty. I know you're poor. You're poor financially. It's not negligence or laziness. It's suffering. Now, what about today? Is it is it possible that today we can get, um, can it cost us financially for standing up for Jesus and speaking the truth in love in America? We probably couldn't have said this a few years ago, but we could say this now, right? You can, right? You can lose social capital around the world and even here in the U.S. The media, universities, the society are largely antagonistic to, now they're not antagonistic to all Christians. Here, who, here's who they are antagonistic to. They are antagonistic to gospel-pointed and gospel-poking Christianity. There's a little bit more of a social cost now, but I wonder, do you, do you live a gospel-pointy Christianity where it kind of pokes people sometimes for their salvation, but other times uncomfortably? When you live a gospel-pointy Christianity, you will get antagonism from, the po- from, from poking. And so these people were poor. And yet Jesus says, even though you're poor, you're what? I know your poverty, but you are rich. I know your true identity. Why are they rich? Because they're, who's their father? God's their father, right? And so they're rich. Revelation 3.18, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. This church has bought the gold that Jesus is selling. Not the gold of this world, not the gold that the streets are made of, but spiritual gold, spiritual riches. James 2.5 says, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised in this world? There was a higher population. So, so here you see that people are, um, they're rich even though they're poor. Even though um, they're being persecuted, they are rich. And so they are to be, um, they are to be um, commended here for their riches. Before we get to the other... You know, um, when I introduced myself to you here, Ivan introduced himself today, and he said, um, hi, I'm Ivan, I'm a member of this church. That's how he introduced himself. When I led the gathering here, I said, hi, I'm PJ, I'm a member and pastor of this church. And I, what am I doing? I'm, I'm identifying myself. But what if I said, hi, I'm PJ, um, MVP <laughs> of the 1998 Church Basketball League 20 years ago? Hi, I'm PJ. Nice to meet you. Would you be, would you be impressed? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You'd be like, this guy is a loser. <laughs> Why is he introducing himself as the champion or the, you know, the MVP of a basketball league of a church 20 years ago? Like, that's really how he's introducing himself today? Like, this guy's a loser. Come on, you, you'd say that. Um, and the reason you'd say that is because this is worthless, right? I mean, this is worthless, this is not true riches. 
right? This is, this is worthless. And yet, this is what the world values, things like this. And so people are like, oh, you're poor because you don't have a trophy. You don't have the riches of this world. And here we are coveting 20-year-old trophies from people? Is that what we're doing as Christians? I mean, Aaron right, right, rightly led us in confessing the sin of coveting from the world, because we do. But we're literally coveting trash. And what do we have? We are heirs of the kingdom. Right, for me to say I'm PJ, a member of Bethany Baptist Church, what am I saying? That Christ has died for my sins, that I'm part of the new covenant community, that this cup is a new covenant in his blood and I get to drink it as a member of this church because Christ has included me in his new covenant family. Isn't that riches? Amen. That's true riches. This is nothing. This is worthless. And yet we covet these things. Not this. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous picture. But that's what we do all the time, don't we? With the riches of this world, the new car. I mean, it could even apply to church. You know, I could be saying, oh, I can't wait. You know, if we had a church where it's packed out and every church was filled and we had so many people that we had to build a bigger building and our church was known for, for doing good in our city and people coming to Christ. I mean, if, even if I found my treasure in that, that's still trash. That's still for worldly, I mean, we could do it and celebrate salvation, but we could also do it to celebrate worldly fame and that's trash. It literally is worthless. Jesus says, I know your poverty. The world thinks you're poor. The world thinks you're broke because you don't have any trophies like that. You don't have any 20-year-old trophies. But I know you, and you're rich. You are rich, and they're poor. They're poor with their cheap trophies that look valuable in the world's eyes because everyone says it's valuable when it really isn't. And so, so he knows their affliction. He knows their suffering. But let's move on in verse 9. What else does he know? I know the slander. He knows your slander. He knows that you're being slandered. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, we need, to, we need to just do a little bit of work here before we move on. Um, here on this point, we need to understand that um, you have Jews here. Now, the Jews had the right legally. They had the right legally to um, not have to say Caesar is Lord and worship Caesar as Lord. So there were probably, one scholar estimates, there were 50 to 60 million people in the Roman Empire. There were 5 million Jews, and there were about 50,000 Christians. Very, very few Christians in the Roman Empire at this time. But there are 5 million Jews, which is a tenth of the population, right? That's a big group. It's a big group in, in, in the empire. And so Jews had an exemption where they could sacrifice, they could burn the incense to the emperor without having to confess him in a religious way as God. And they could do that, and they had, an, they had an exemption clause. And Christians were worship a Jewish Messiah. They start in the synagogues, right? I mean, so in a sense, they're kind of under the umbrella of the Jews. Well, as, as time goes on, the Jews are starting to say, hold on, no, no, no. Um, those Christians are not part of us. They don't get that exemption, exemption clause. They, they have to burn the incense because they're not part of us. They're not true Jews. And so the Jews were saying that they are not true followers of the Bible. We are. So they are not exempt with us. So Romans, and then if you're in a city like Smyrna that has a lot of patriotism, there's the danger of mix, mixing patriotism with, with religion because they're a very patriotic society and because they are very religious, you mix those two things together and you cross their religious patriotism and now Christians were suffering. The Jews were okay because they got the exemption clause, but the Christians weren't and now they're suffering. And Jesus is saying, I know that you are the true Jews. What he means by you're the true people of God. 
The church does not replace Israel. The church is, is the, is the, is the, are the heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, if you, if you, think, about, if you think about the Old Testament, um, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's Isaac, not Esau. No, not Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And then when you get through, even in Israel, there's a confusion about who is the true people of God. You have Israel versus Israel. Jeremiah and Hananiah in, in the exile. Hananiah is saying, uh, Jeremiah has this big yoke, like a big animal yoke on his neck, and, and he's walking around, and he's, supposed to, he's saying to Israel, you know what? Um, this is how we're going to be. Babylon is going to put a yoke around all of their enemies, and so all of us here in Israel, in the land of Canaan, we need to submit to Babylon, and we get to live in our own land. And then another prophet, Hananiah, took that off of Jeremiah's neck and smashed it on the floor. I don't know if that's how he did it, but he broke it. He broke the yoke. And then he said, that's not true. Yahweh says that in two years, Babylon will be removed. So we don't need to submit to them. And so Jeremiah said, well, we'll find out who the real prophet is because one of these things are going to come true, the other one's not. And he says, and, and Jeremiah says, and Yahweh's going to kill you. So a few months later, I think. This is Jeremiah 27, 28, if you want to read it. Then, and, then Hananiah ends up dying. Okay? But here's my point. There are always two people saying, we're the true people of God. We're the true people of God. Remember um, Solomon with the two wives or the two mothers who said, it's my baby, it's my baby. And you don't have DNA testing back then. So how can you tell? It's a newborn, so you can't really tell whose baby it is. And they're fighting over the baby. I mean, you have that, we're the true, we're the true people of God. No, we're the true people of God. We still have that today. Mormons call themselves what? Christians? Don't they? Jehovah's Witnesses say they follow the Bible. Roman Catholics say they follow the Bible. All kinds of people are going to say they follow, the, they're the true followers of the Bible. The Jews were saying that here. And so were the Christians. And Jesus says, they are, uh, I know they call themselves Jews, but they are not. They are actually a synagogue of Satan. Satan. Wow. That's intense language. But Jesus has said stuff like that before. Remember John 8 where he says, you are of your father, the devil. They say, we're Abraham's children. No, you're not. If you're Abraham's children, you'd believe me. But because you want to kill me, you're a liar and a murderer like your father, the devil. It's not talking about genetic ancestry. It's spiritual. Amen. They were genetically, ancestrally children of Abraham. But they weren't children of Abraham. They were children of the devil. And so here Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. This even happens in the church. You know, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26... It says that some Christians in the church can be captured by the devil to do his will. So even Christians in the church saying, this is true Christianity, this is true Christianity. And it could even happen in the church. That's going to happen. And Jesus says, I know it's going to happen, but I know those who are mine. And I know the truth. So finish fearlessly and faithfully because, because I am calling you to. And because I know you. I know who you are. Okay, so that's the first reason. The second reason now, why you're to finish fearlessly and faithfully. Finish fear, fear, uh, faithfully and fearlessly, secondly, because Jesus is in control of your suffering. Because Jesus is in control of your suffering. Let's hustle here a little bit more. Let's go to verse 10. Verse 10 has the command, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So finish fearlessly. Look, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you. So it's coming from Satan. And you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. That's um, speaking of, of finishing faithfully. 
But let's, let's go back to, um, sorry, the beginning part of verse 10. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. What you are about to suffer. In other words, Jesus is making a statement not about the past, not about the present, but about the future. What you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer in the future. That's what he's saying. In other words, Jesus controls the future, right? He knows the future. He declares the end from the beginning. He controls the future. Ephesians 1.11 says he works everything according to the counsel of his will. He doesn't only control the future. Look at verse 10 again. Who's going to throw them into prison? Who is going to throw the Christians into prison in verse 10? Look at your Bible. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So God not only, Jesus not only controls the future, he also controls the devil. Amen. He knows what the devil is going to do. Remember the devil has to ask for permission to persecute Job and Peter and the other apostles and the church at Smyrna and you. He's under the control of God. Not only does he control the future and the devil, he also controls the purpose. Look at verse 10 again. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. To what? What's the purpose? To what? Test you. Now that word test is the same word as tempt in the Greek. There's only one word for both. Tempt and test. The devil wants to tempt you to what? Sin and to give up. And God wants to test you, to refine you in fire, to make you like gold. Same trial. Same situation, same 10 days, same imprisonment. One is trying to tempt you to sin and give up. The other is testing you to grow you and strengthen you and strengthen those around you Amen. in the same thing. So in other words, God not only controls the future, he not only controls the devil, he controls the purpose of your testing. The devil has his agenda, but so does God. And who's stronger? God is stronger. So brother or sister, in your affliction, Finish faithfully and fearlessly because there is a purpose to your suffering. There's a purpose to it. And that's, this is what happened with Jesus in the wilderness, right? When he went to the wilderness, who wanted to test him in the wilderness? Satan. Satan. But who sent him into the wilderness? God. God did, right? The Holy Spirit, it says in Matthew 3, the end of Matthew 3. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness after he was baptized. So we learn that it's not only Satan who has an agenda in your suffering. God does too. This is why I say, Christian, you will suffer, you must suffer. I'm not saying that because it's all happy, clappy, and it's not a big deal. I'm just saying that's, that's part of the deal. That's part of the package. Amen. It's part of the Christian package that you will suffer. And that's why God says in his testing, consider it a great what? In James 1, 2. Consider it a great joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its complete work, so that you may be complete and mature, lacking nothing. nothing. That's one of the reasons why God gives you trials. Not only does he control the purpose, he also controls time. How long are they going to have affliction for? Ten days. Ten days. Now, is this literal? Some people say it is, and it might be. I would guess probably not, but uh, that's not worth, you know, fighting about. But um, regardless of whether you think it's um, literal or not, it is certainly a short period of time. That's the point. That you're going to suffer for a short period of time, and it might end up in death. Here's the point, though. God limits your suffering. Your suffering has an expiration date. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord, your, your suffering has an expiration date. And it's more like milk than like oil in a car. It's not like 3,000 miles three months later. It's more like... I mean, in God's perspective, it's like a short amount of time. It's 10 days. Life is a what? Vapor. Time flies. You blink 
and your kids are grown adults. I mean, next Sunday, I've been here for four years. And I'm looking at pictures that we used to take every Sunday of our kids Sunday morning. And four years has changed a lot. Doesn't seem like it. Seems like in some ways it seems like time has flown. But then you look at the kids and you realize, well, a lot of things have been happening in four years. Time flies and so do your afflictions. So does your imprisonment. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And Paul said a momentary light affliction. Do you know Paul's sufferings? Have you read his list of sufferings? And he says it's momentary and light. Peter says the same thing. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. It's a short time. Psalm 30, verse 5, though the sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. That's literally how long your suffering is. That's how long your life is. It's a vapor. I'm not making light of your suffering, but I'm trying to put it in biblical perspective. It's small compared to your eternal joy and your eternal reward. It really is a puff of air. Your whole life is a puff of air, let alone your suffering. And so um, God controls time. He controls the length of your suffering. Application to the church family here, brothers and sisters, Because God controls our suffering, because he knows our suffering, he knows us in our suffering, let's help each other trust God. Let's let's help each other trust God's control in difficult times. Let's pray for each other. Let's remind each other. Let's be there with each other present, and let's encourage each other. Let's remind each other God is in control, so you don't have to be. That's good news. Jesus is Lord. He's in control. You don't have to be. You know, The church in Smyrna is one of the two churches that Jesus does not rebuke. Did you know that? It's one of the two churches that he has no sin to name. Now, this church was poor and unimpressive to the world. Even to churches with their little trophies saying, how big our church is and how much our attendance is or how much money we take in or things like that. But Jesus doesn't rebuke this church. What do we learn from this? Your church's commendation is not based on your numbers of attendance or finances or your influence. From this letter, we learn that a church is rich in Christ and they're called to be faithful. So in other words, um, it's more important to be faithful than powerful. You can measure a church's health then, not by its attendance and not by its its money. You can measure a church's health, not by its impressive buildings. You can measure a church's health by how much gospelizing and peacemaking and disciple-making they're doing and how much opposition it brings to their lives. Amen. That's the measure of a church's strength. Are we sharing the gospel with people? That sometimes we see conversions and sometimes we see opposition. That's a healthy church. That's a church that does not get rebuked by the Lord here, at least not this church. Last one, all right? So finish faithfully and fearlessly. Number one, because Jesus knows you. Number two, because Jesus is in control of your suffering. And lastly, number three, Finish faithfully and fearlessly because Jesus rewards you. Jesus rewards you. Look at verse 10 again. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you what? What will Jesus give you? The what? The crown of life. The trophy of life. I say trophy because the crown here is not a crown that a king wears, a crown where he rules. It's a a victor's crown. It's a wreath. It's a, a gold medal around your neck. It's a trophy. It's a championship ring. That's what it is. Jesus says, conquer, be faithful to the point of death, and I'll give you the championship ring. 
I'll give you the trophy. I'll give you the gold medal. I will give you the crown. Compete. You're in a competition against Satan. And Satan has deceived people to become your enemies, though they're not your real enemies. They're not your real enemies. So you need to be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. One thing, sorry, I should have said this a few seconds ago. When I said they're not your real enemies, I need to say this today because there's a tragedy that some of us have been praying about since yesterday. There's been a lot of tragedies this week in the news. But one of the tragedies was anti-Semitism yesterday where 11 um, Jews were killed in a terrorist attack in Pittsburgh for being Jewish. So when, when Jesus says here that they're a synagogue of Satan, he's not saying it is right for anyone, including Christians, to take, to take violent action against them. So this, this, I mean, when you read synagogue of Satan, that sounds anti-Semitic, right? I mean, you're just saying it's satanic. What Jesus means by that is because they reject the Jewish Messiah, are they following God or Satan? Satan. Satan. He's not saying that they become your enemies and you need to attack them physically. That is sinful and evil, and that is satanic too, right? That's satanic as well, to, to take physical violent action and oppression towards people because they're Jewish. Um, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. What he's teaching here is what we do all the time when, whenever we rebuke someone in sin. He's loving them. He speaks the truth in what? Love. In love so that they would repent. If you come up to me and you tell me I'm sinning and I'm being captured by the devil and he's tricking me, I might get mad at you. But if I'm in my right mind and I'm actually sinning, I should actually appreciate you. Amen. Because you might be saying, PJ, you're, you're, you're being deceived by Satan. I'd be like, how dare you call me satanic? I could say that. Or I could be like, you know what, brother, sister, thank you for rebuking me and reminding me that Satan has actually captured me. I do need to repent. So Jesus calling them a synagogue of Satan is not, it's not malicious. It's not inciting a, a, a violence against them. It's not even attacking them. It's a, it's a truth statement to wake them up to save them, okay? So we, we talked about a few weeks ago loving your enemies. I just need to say that, especially in light of yesterday, as we continue to pray for the victims and their families in Pittsburgh this, uh, this morning. So what do you get? You get the crown of life. And it's really the crown that is life. What is your reward? What's your trophy? Eternal life. life. Eternal life is your trophy. You get to be with God in his Trinitarian celebration forever. Not only does he keep you from that, or not only does he reward you with the crown of life, yes, hallelujah to that. And then verse 11, what else does he give you? The one who conquers, the one who competes and wins. The one who defeats his competition, Satan, and those who are deceived by Satan to try to push you to faithlessness and fearfulness. The one who conquers all the way to the end and is faithful to Christ in gospelizing and trusting Christ, he will never be what? Harmed by the what? Second death. Jesus keeps you safe from the second death. What is the second death? The second death is God's damnation on sinners for their sins. For us, that means if you are not in Christ, you will be thrown. You will not be in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. You will be thrown into the lake of fire. fire. That's Revelation 21, verse 8, and Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. You'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and there's only one person to keep you safe from the lake of fire. There's only one person to keep you safe that you will never be harmed, not even from a little flame of the second death. Who's the only one who can keep you safe? Jesus. Jesus. Only Jesus can keep you safe from it. That's why Jesus said... What I, I have quoted here in my notes, it's right here behind me. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will never, what? Die. Will never die, ever. 
You'll never die. You will never experience a second death for a millisecond. When you die here, the first death, when you breathe your last breath and you die physically, the first death, you will not for a second experience a second death. You pass right into glory, right into the presence of the Lord. That's sweet. Death is an enemy. First and second death is an enemy. But brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ and you're faithful to the point of death, you finish faithless, faithfully and, and fearlessly, then you will never be harmed by the second death. That's why we say in Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind, and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Your storms are not in vain. Your suffering is not in vain. Your tears are not in vain. Christ knows them, and you will have a better and more joyful time on the new earth because of the suffering you endure. Now, why is Jesus the one who can give us eternal life? Go back to verse 8. Why is he the one who can give us eternal life? Well, he's the one who speaks to the churches. He says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. So he's the one who speaks. He's the Lord of the church. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the churches, the seven golden lampstands. But he tells us who he is. Thus says, and what does he call himself? The, the first and the last. What does it mean to be the first and the last? In terms of the attributes of God, what does it mean to be first and last? To have no ending or no beginning. He's eternal, right? We call this the eternality of God. No beginning, no ending. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. This is what Isaiah 44, 6 says. This is what Yahweh, the King of Israel, and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Amen. So when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, what is he saying? He's what? God. He's God. He's Yahweh. That's what he's saying. That's who he is. He is God. The Son of God, but He's not only truly human, He's truly God. And so Jesus is before your suffering. He's going to be here long after your suffering. So when He says your, your suffering is 10 days, it's short, He means it's short. Even if it's 80 years, that's short in eternity. And brothers and sisters, I know some of you will be going through suffering for long decades. So not only is He the first and the last, read verse 8, He's the one who was what? The one who was dead and came to life. He died. So not only is he God, he's also man because he dies. He's the God man. You're safe from the second death because Jesus died. Now, I'm going to say something here. This might be off. I might have to come up here next week and say I was wrong. But I think I'm going to take a little bit of a theological risk here. Jesus, in a sense, maybe that will guard me. In a sense, Jesus, well, Jesus experienced not only the first death. In a sense, Jesus experienced the second death. He experienced the damnation of God on the cross. It's not forever for him, because at the end of it, he's hanging in darkness for three hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end, right before he dies, he says, it is finished. But for those three hours, in darkness, under the damnation and wrath of God, he is experiencing, he actually experienced a second death before the first death, right? He experiences the second death first, because he is taking the wrath of God for sinners on the cross. And then he dies the first death when he breathes his last breath. But here's the point. Because Jesus suffered the second death, you will never be harmed by the second death. Amen. He took all the harm of the second death for you. 
He was your substitute in your place for your sins. He was defeated by, he was, he was, um, he defeated death and sin because he died the second death and then the first death and then he rose from the dead. And so he says, because I live, you will live also. You will not suffer the second death. Jesus can give you the crown of eternal life and protect you from the second death because he suffered in your place for your sins. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, here's good news. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to the lake of fire. You don't have to suffer for your sins. You don't have to pay for any of your sins, not even one. You don't have to pay for any of your sins. All of your sins can be forgiven. You don't have to be harmed by the second death. You don't have to go to the lake of fire. Now, we deserve to go to the lake of fire because God is holy and he made us and we are sinners and we deserve his wrath for our sins, right? But Jesus Christ died in our place. He took the second death for sinners. Amen. He rose from the dead so that you, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, if you would repent from your sins and repent from your goodness and your righteousness and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you will be saved. God will forgive you. He'll give you eternal life right now right here. Everyone calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. saved. Call on him today. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. You don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to wait till you fix your life. What is the song, Jesus? Um, come ye sinners. If you wait until you're ready, you may never come at all. Don't wait till you're ready. All he requires is that you, you know your need of him that he will save you from your sins. So if you're not a Christian, we, Bethany Baptist Church, invites you this morning to believe in Jesus and repent from your sins. Repent from your sins. If you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, face the fight and finish your life faithfully and fearlessly because Jesus knows your suffering. He controls your suffering and he'll reward you for your suffering with eternal life. How do you know you'll be fearless in the face of death? I think about this, really, this is a theological exercise that I work through in my own life. Can I really let my loved one suffer and me not deny Jesus? That feels like my body feels to, starts to feel shaky and wobbly when I think about it. Like the more I think about it and imagine it, the more shaky I feel. And I ask myself, Lord, can I do that though? I mean, can I watch my loved ones suffer and all I have to do is say, Jesus is, or, um, Jesus is not Lord, I deny Jesus. All I have to do is renounce Jesus. That's all I need to do, just say it. I can even keep it in my heart, some reason, right? Let me just say it out loud so that my family doesn't suffer. I, I think, like, can I actually do it? And here's my answer. Here's my best answer. Like, can I actually be a martyr for Jesus? And I don't say this, I hope, with any spiritual pride. I think the answer is yes. Here's why. God says his grace is what? Sufficient, Sufficient for you. I'm not in that trial right now. But in that trial, like I feel totally weak right now. I feel like, if you, if it, like I feel not prepared at all. But I just want to trust the Lord. If he's gotten me this far in my life, if he's gotten you this far in your life, will he not give you enough grace to be faithful in that moment? Amen. He will, right? Yes. I mean, if you're really a Christian, he will. If you don't trust him, you won't. But if you really do believe him, he will give you grace in that moment. The question is, are we suffering now in the smaller ways? At work and at church and in the neighborhood. Do we embrace the suffering and embrace Christ in our suffering now without becoming faithless and fearful? If you, do the, if you take God's grace now in your smaller sufferings, we can reason 
that by God's grace, not our own strength, but by God's grace, if it became a bigger issue of suffering, he would also be gracious. And if we keep the pattern of repentance and obedience in the smaller sufferings, we will also be obedient in the bigger ones, right? You see that? So I don't feel like I'm the super courageous Christian. I totally feel completely weak and unable. But I just, it, my strength, the strength is not in us, it's in him, right? And we have to trust that in the moment of suffering, he will be gracious and we will be faithful. But we know that by being faithful now in the tests he gives us now. Church family, you're not alone in your suffering. That's what Satan wants to say. You're all alone in your suffering. You're not. You have a church family around you. Don't be surprised by your suffering, but let's encourage each other and let's be with each other and support each other. With these three reasons, Jesus controls your suffering, Jesus knows you in your suffering, and Jesus rewards you for your suffering, we must conquer and not cower. Listen to these scary verses. Revelation 21, 7. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You either conquer or you cower. You're either faithful or faithless. You're either fearful or fearless. So Matthew 10, 32 and 33 say this. Therefore, everyone, Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Is that scary? Yeah. Brothers and sisters, I hope you feel the fear, the fear, like the weight of those verses. How many times have we been scared into silence when you knew God wanted you to speak up? It's not a sword to your throat. But you've been fearless. You've been, you, we've been silent at times. So again, the call here is to be fearlessly faithful to Christ in gospel, gospelizing your neighbors this week. If you do, if you don't, you'll make shipwreck of your faith in Jesus. You'll be consumed by the second death and earthly rewards. And you'll be enslaved by and living under lesser fears as you're controlled by your idols of comfort and earthly treasures, which is really trash. 20-year-old trophies that nobody cares about. If you trust Christ, though, and if you suffer well, faithfully and fearlessly, you'll be faithful to Jesus, you'll receive the crown of life, and um, you'll receive a joyful, spirit-empowered boldness for the cause of love and more suffering. And you'll encourage your brothers and sisters who are suffering beside you. I'll close with a story of Polycarp. You guys know Polycarp? He was a bishop in Smyrna. This was written about 156 A.D., he was, a, I'll just tell you the story. This is a really cool story. Um, it's cool. It's tragic, too, in one sense of suffering, but um, cool is probably too light of a word. So, uh, Polycarp was a bishop who was being hunted down to be killed. He's in his 80s. And um, they're searching all over for him, and he prays in his room, and, they're, and people are telling him, you need to hide. He's like, I don't need to hide. I want God's will to be done. So they're coming, searching for him like he's a criminal. They come into his house, and he comes downstairs, and he basically welcomes them. And he says, can I give you guys food or drink? And he welcomes them, and he says, are you guys hungry? Are you thirsty? He feeds the people who are going to arrest him. And then he says, before we leave, can I have some time to pray undisturbed? Can I have an hour to pray? And they're like, okay, fine, sure. So he prays for two hours in their presence, and they're just amazed at his prayer. So he prays for them. He's praying for his, all the people he shared the gospel with. He's praying for God. You know, I mean, you only got a few more prayers to get answered before you're up in heaven, right? So he's like, let me just, can I have one last prayer time with the Lord? So he's praying for the churches. He's praying, praying, praying. They're impressed by this. Then he gets put into the carriage and the captain of the police um, says to him, why, as, as they're on their way to um, the, 
the place where he's going to be executed. Why? They ask him, why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense and saving yourself? Dude, just say it. Like, we don't want to kill you, old man. Basically what they're saying, like, just, just say Caesar is Lord. Just burn a little candle. Just save your life. What's the, big har- What's the harm in that? So at first he gave them no answer. When they persisted, he said, I'm not going to do what you counsel me. So then they get angry with him. So then they take him there before the proconsul, and he says, have res- and they, the proconsul says, have respect for your age. And then they say, swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists, because they called Christians atheists, because how many gods do they believe in? One God, and they believe in many gods. So Christians were called atheists. Come on, Polycarp, say, away with the atheists. And he's there in front of this whole crowd, and he looks at all the non-Christians, and he says, away with the atheists pointing at all the non-Christians there. Um, and so they press him even further. Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile, revile the Messiah, revile the Christ, Polycarp. And then Polycarp says, 86 years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But they persisted. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And then he starts gospelizing them. If you suppose vainly that I swear by the genius of Caesar, and you say and feign that you are ignorant who I am, hear you plainly, I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. If you want me to explain Christianity to you, I'm happy to explain it to you. And he's under trial and he wants to gospelize them. You want to set a time and date to gospelize you? I'd love to do it. Then the count proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw you to them except you repent. But he said, call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us, but it is a noble thing to change from which is improper to righteousness. In other words, I don't repent from righteousness to unrighteousness. We should repent from unrighteousness to righteousness. Then he said to them again, if you despise the wild beasts, I will, or the proconsul said, if you, if you hate the wild beasts, I'll cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. You want me to burn you? Polycarp says, you threaten that fire which burns for a season. You hear that 10 days there? That limited time, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, but, and after a while, it is quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will, says the 86-year-old man. So saying these things, they realized they couldn't, they said, well, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. Um, and so they start, they, they, they have him, they, want to, they tie him to the fire, and they want to nail him to the post so he doesn't run from the fire. And Polycarp says, leave me as I am, for he has granted me to endure the fire. The one who has granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain at the fire unmoved, even without the security which you seek from the nails. So they didn't nail him, they just tied him. There he is on there, and then, and then as, he's, as he's about to burn, he prays this prayer. O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and the powers and of all creation and of the whole race of the righteous who live in your presence, I bless you because you have granted me this day and hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of your Christ unto resurrection of eternal life, both soul and body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among these in your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you, as you did prepare and reveal it beforehand and have accomplished it. You that art faithful and true, God, 
for this cause, yea, and for all things, I praise you. He's here about to burn, right? They're about to light the fire. I praise you. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom and with him and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and forever and for the ages to come. Amen. And when he offered up the prayer and said, amen, the firemen lit the fire and burned him to death. May we face the fight and finish faithfully and fearlessly. We are in a cosmic battle where, we, where fear and failure is real. Jesus gives himself to you so that you will finish faithfully and fearlessly and enjoy your eternal reward. Let's pray. Father, take these words and give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen.